the Mindset Game Podcast, and I'm your host, James Roberts. And on today's show, I've got Christine Selby. So welcome on to the show, Christine. Hi, thanks. I'm pleasure to be here. Can you give a brief introduction to who you are and what you do? Uh, I'll give it a shot. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm trained as a counseling psychologist here in the States, the United States, and uh, currently live in Maine. Um, so I, I am licensed as a psychologist, and I do have that going on as a private practice, uh, but I also teach full-time uh, at a local university, and I teach uh, primarily in the psychology department. Um, so my private practice, though, is uh, made up mostly of uh, people dealing with eating disorders, quite frankly, um, but a lot of them are dealing, in, in addition to that, a lot of them are dealing with anxiety, uh, depression, and um, a smaller percentage of who I work with are athletes, but they usually find me for um, oftentimes issues related to mental health. Sometimes it is eating disorders, but other times it's uh, pretty intense anxiety. Um, occasionally people will find me because they're, they're, they've kind of hit a crisis in their sport participation and honestly aren't quite sure if they want to continue. So, um, so I do work with a, a wide variety of people, but I do find that a lot of... And a lot of where we end up uh, in the work is uh, helping them to figure out what, whatever it is that they want um, so they can feel happy, content, satisfied, that kind of thing. Um, I was looking at your Twitter. Um, what brought about that, the book that you published, uh, The Psychology of Relaxation? Yeah, so that was... Uh, it was one of those situations where I have colleagues in the field of, of sports psychology that I've worked with in a variety of capacities. And uh, so a, a colleague of mine was writing actually the exercise in sports psychology uh, edition of the book that I wrote. So the, the book that I wrote, um, Chilling Out, the Relaxation, uh, the Psychology of Relaxation, is uh, a part of a nine-book series. Uh, and so she, the publisher, had asked if they knew anyone who uh, was interested and you know had some knowledge in that, and so she referred me. So it was kind of one of those, I don't know if it would have happened if I hadn't been working with this person, but that's how it came about, and I agreed to do it because, though it's not my primary area of focus, I work a lot with people on how to take care of themselves. Um, and a big part of that is how to relax uh, and how to find enjoyment in life. And kind of linking the two together between that psychology of relaxation and dealing with the nature that you do in your work with anxiety, how do the two kind of interlink that to be able to like, help people and vice versa in both situations? So how did how did what interlink with what? I'm sorry. Uh, how does relax the psychology of relaxation interlink with like people that have problems with anxiety? Oh, okay, I see what you're saying. So, or at least I, I think I do. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, there is, yeah, there is the the people who are dealing with the clinical anxiety. So when I use the word anxiety, I am talking about the the kind that's diagnosed and. Uh, usually requires treatment, maybe medication, often psychotherapy. So certainly a big part of treating that is helping people with their thought process. A big part of anxiety is what, you know, really what people tell themselves about what's going on in their lives. So sometimes helping them even identify what the thoughts are, but also to slow some of that stuff down uh, and to 
perhaps even change how they're thinking. A big part of that is learning how to relax the body. Uh, because, you know, I think most people by now really do recognize the connection between the mind and body. And so when the mind is going a mile a minute, uh, it's it's very difficult to slow it down being uh really intentional about not only paying attention to the thoughts, but also feeling what it feels like um, to be anxious. And a lot of people are surprised by just how how tight their body is. Um, most of them aren't too surprised about how fast their heart rate is going, but when they really pay attention to just how tense they are, uh, they feel it throughout their entire body. So, so I hope I've answered that in the way that you were asking. Um, but yeah, a, a, Big part of it is, you know, like I said, it learns to relax the body. And some of that is, uh, some people find that simply learning how to breathe correctly is uh-huh. all they need to do. Uh, and others find they need something more like a, a meditation or relaxation script or yoga or something like that. And when you talk along the lines of breathing in the correct way, mm-hmm. what can that consist of? Yeah, so... Uh, I, you know, again, I, I don't know precisely why there may be people out there who do, but a lot of us breathe, you know, if you pay attention on your breathing, you're usually breathing sort of up here and your shoulders might rise and that your your upper chest might rise. Uh, and you're actually not getting a full breath when you do that. Um, and so the, the breathing correctly is often referred to abdominal breathing or belly breathing. Uh, and so sometimes what I do is literally teach them how to breathe properly. And, and it's it's actually fairly simple. Um, it, it often just consists of putting a hand on your on your belly and just making sure that's moving. It's rising and falling with each breath. Uh, and it can be that simple. But, you know, when we get into our daily routines and do what we do, we often lose track of you know, my breathing, right? <laughs> you know, there's a reason why I'm kind of out of breath or feeling, you know, again, tense or whatever. And, and again, and a signal is, is truly not breathing properly. So, Okay. And then coming back to your early your thoughts about, um, not earlier thoughts, there, what you were saying about um, obviously eating disorders. Mm-hmm. Do you see from your obviously work as a psychologist, does there have a, a rapport between eating disorders and people having anxieties as a result of that? That's a really good question. Um, and, and the way you asked it, it's it certainly can happen that way, that the anxiety can be the result of the eating disorder. Oftentimes, uh, what's found, though, is that the, the anxiety predates the eating disorder. So eating disorders and anxiety are very commonly co-occurring. They often are, you know, somebody's dealing with both of those things. Um, Usually the anxiety has a longer history than the eating disorder. Um, So again, treating it, and that's part of the reason why treating eating disorders is so difficult. It isn't, the eating disorder itself is difficult, but again, often it's not just the eating disorder. So there's often a co-occurring anxiety that certainly fuels eating disorder. Um, But sometimes, you know, it, it again, depending on on the what's going on, it makes sense to to kind of set the eating disorder aside, depending on how severe it is, and focus on where the anxiety is, how they experience it, and then to the degree to, that it makes sense, how that feeds into the the eating disorder, how it may have even contributed to developing in the first place. Okay, that's quite interesting that you say you've got to, in some cases, put it aside 
to solve the underlying issue. Yeah, I, you know, I don't, if you were to have somebody else on here, I don't know if they would agree with me. I know I'm not looking at how a lot of my work with eating disorders, I, I mean, I, I'm making a guess about percentages, but the vast majority of the time we are not talking about the eating disorder. Um, it's kind of like, uh, I certainly don't want to make too many comparisons because each thing is different, but it's like with, with depression, um, there's lots of causes for depression, but, you know, feeling sad, sleeping a lot, eating, overeating, undereating, those are all symptoms of something else going on. It's the same kind of thing with the eating disorder. The, the eating behaviors are a symptom of something else. So it's it's an attempt at solving some kind of, of issue. Um, and there's no doubt with eating disorders that there are a lot, there's a lot going on in the brain. There's a lot more research now to suggest there's some genetic components to it. There's a lot of brain chemistry occurring, but there's also quite a bit of uh, psychology behind it in terms of helping the patient understand relationships, emotional regulation, that kind of thing. Because usually when the eating disorder is at its worst, there's a whole lot of emotional turmoil going on. And it's in some cases they're trying to fill a void that they're missing in some aspect of their lives that they're obviously going down that route? Sometimes. And again, it's it's a it's not always easy to, to figure out and, and depending on the, the person they may or may not want to figure it out but I, it is certainly the case that at some point when the because a lot of times people with eating disorders really they, they want to let it go they want to get rid of it and they don't at the same time and so when they get closer to really wanting to finally be done with the eating disorder and push it entirely out of their lives there's kind of a, a panic and there's and I don't mean that necessarily in terms of panic attack but there's a sort of like well, wait a minute if I don't have this what do I have what do I fill this in with and so a lot of folks are confronted by the idea that there's there's a piece of who they are that's that is a void that's missing that the eating disorder has filled up so what I don't know for sure is was that piece missing from the very beginning or was the eating disorder around so long that it just made enough space and has now created a hole. But I think you're accurate in, in saying that there is, the eating disorder fills up a space that when taken away, there's just kind of nothing there. Uh, and they, they have to learn how to fill it up with something that's more healthy uh, and more satisfying. And does that, that fact come back to the person doesn't have, well, they don't have a true definition of who they are to a certain extent, if you get what I mean. They... <laughs> Yeah. They can't. Yeah, like, and that, they can't cut. Well, like, let the, and then I think another psychologist that I had on, Steve Melly, was saying a lot of athletes have problems with identifying who they are. Obviously, when they retire, mm -hmm. is that something yes. you could probably equate to with people who have eating disorders as well? Is if they take that away, mm -hmm. who are who am I actually? Yes. I mean, I, you hit the nail on the head and we really literally could stop there, but I'll say some stuff. Um, but you're absolutely right. I, I would agree um, with sport. I mean, that's one of the, the most difficult things for somebody who's been an athlete, regardless of the level at which they've competed. Um, it's really hard to let go of that and to no longer say, oh, I'm an athlete. So some people with eating disorders, whether they really want to or not, come to highly identify with it. Um, and it's really fascinating because a lot of the work that I do with eating disorders with themselves and how they interact with family members and friends is 
helping themselves and helping those other people see them as more than their eating disorder. However, at the same time, they often highly identify with the eating disorder. Well, this, this is who I am. This is what I do. This is a part of me. So again, circling back around, yes, the, the identity piece, the sense of self is depending on how long the eating disorder has been around is really, um, either underdeveloped depending on how early the eating disorder started so they never had a chance to really develop who they were or again it's been around for so long that they've forgotten who they are and it takes a while to refigure that out what are some of the steps that you could put in place to help that person get out of that mindset get out of the mindset of like identifying with the eating disorder yes yeah uh that's a really good question. Uh, I hesitate. I'll try to to, to answer that the way you asked it in terms of steps. I don't know how good of a job I'll do because I probably typical psychologist. I can't help but say, well, it depends. It depends on the person and the situation, but, uh, and, and where they are, but truly the first step and it's a big one. It, it could take years truly to get here. But the first step is they need to want to let go of the eating disorder. Um, because it really doesn't make sense um, to do a whole lot of self or identity work um, if they're so tightly clinging to the eating disorder. Uh, it's not that both can't be done at the same time, because in, in part, you know, when I ask questions about, you know, if they say something that it implies they really liked an experience or an interaction with somebody or they really didn't like it, I will absolutely talk about that in terms of, well, that's something that you know about yourself, right? You didn't like that. Do you know why you didn't like it? That kind of thing. So there's some of that work that can be done, but it's still a really scary thing for a lot of folks early on to declare, this is me, this is not me. The eating disorder fixes all of that because it defines who they are for them. Uh, This is what I eat and when, or this is what I don't eat and when. I think about food all the time. I don't have to think about anything else. So... So, yeah, I mean, the, the first step really is at least moving in strongly in the direction of wanting to get rid of the eating disorder. And and the second step, which, again, another really big one that kind of occurs like is, is what I mentioned before, helping them figure out, well, who are you uh, without the eating disorder? Do you ever remember knowing who you were before this occurred, before this showed up? And that's okay if you don't. We'll figure it out. And I often ask them really benign, seemingly stupid, silly questions like, do you know what your favorite color is? Uh, And some do. Uh, They're like, well, yeah, I really like blue or whatever. And and some don't. They have no idea. And so I'm not not a huge fan of homework, but I often say that that might be something to think about. It's not going to change your life, but everybody has a different favorite color. And even if it's green, you might love forest green and they like Kelly green. So even small things like that that you know about yourself are really important to figure out. And obviously with eating disorders and whatnot, to get out of that situation, is it good to have obviously a support network behind you? For sure. Um, it's it's not impossible to recover without a good support network. Sometimes the support network is the treatment team, but of course treatment ends at some point, so that team will effectively go away. Um, so it's not impossible to recover fully without a good support network, but man, it is really, really important um, to have a support network um, 
that truly supports you. And I, I suspect you, you may know what that means, but um, did we get disconnected? No, no, still still, working. Okay. I'm sorry. Yeah. My, my other screen went weird. Okay. Sorry. Uh, so I, I've, I've worked with people who have um, an apparently strong support network, which means, you know, they've got family, they've got friends. Um, and what I mean by apparently strong is that they will tell the patient, I'm here for you. We're here to support you. They're maybe, you know, paying for treatment, that kind of thing. But they don't fully understand the eating disorder and are ultimately not supportive in the sense that they may say, well, just hurry. Why aren't you better yet? Um, all you need to do is eat in the case of anorexia. All you need to do is stop eating in the case of binge eating. Um, they may continue to make their own comments about how they hate their body. They wish they would lose weight or whatever. And that tends to be really difficult, if not, depending on what's being said, damaging um, to the person in recovery. So uh, a true, a fully supportive support network, um, <clears throat> excuse me, would, and man, this is difficult, especially if it's a, a loved one, and especially if it's your child, but to be patient, um, to make sure that they know every step of the way that they're loved and cared about, no matter what no matter what they say or do, even if they seem to be continuing to fully engage in the eating disorder, it is such a hard thing for people to let go of. Uh, and it is equally hard for family members and friends to be patient as they continue to cling to the eating disorder and not let it go the way other people really want them to. I think it's, well, obviously it's those, those sentiments that you say in terms of uh, the the family members saying, "Well, why don't you get better, better quickly?" I think uh, podcast guest I had on by the name of Andy Lane was saying, "It's their feelings that they're portraying on the other person as to mm-hmm. I want you to get better because it make me feel better." Correct. But it yeah. might. It's not gonna make. It's gonna probably, in, especially that circumstance, it's gonna make you feel a hundred times worse. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would completely agree with all of that, that, that it is the, you know, I, I, you know, the caveat that I say, and I'll, I'll say more about what I was just thinking, but I believe, especially in the context of parents and their children, I believe most parents really intend to do good. They intend to support their children. They intend to try to help them in whatever way they can. I don't believe that most parents intend harm, but many parents do uh, inflict harm, uh, but unintentionally. And so something like hurry up and get better is absolutely more about the parent than it is about the, the child or, you know, even if it's an adult child or the spouse or something like that. The person saying hurry up and get better is uncomfortable. They want things um, perhaps to go back to, quote, normal. Um, they're probably scared. They don't want to be scared anymore, that kind of thing. So it does ultimately make person on the receiving end of that message feel like they're a failure because they haven't hurried up and recovered already. Um, and they aren't pleasing this other person. They aren't doing what that person wants them to do. And they, of course, don't know why they can't. They wish, you know, they, they come to me and say, well, how come, I, how come I'm not better already? Like, aren't I supposed to be better already? So it is really difficult. That message is a really difficult one to, to hear for patients, for sure. And then kind of tying... The, all three of them together and looking at it from a sporting context, what implications mm-hmm. can both uh, dis- 
eating disorder and anxiety have on sport and obviously performance? Yeah, so I'll I'll address the eating disorder part first. Um, it can be well. The really tricky part about eating disorders in sport is there's still it's it's gotten a little bit better, but there's still a, the culture of sport in many ways supports eating disorders, especially anorexia and some sports where bulking up is necessary, where whether it's a particular position in football or you're trying to go up a weight class or something. So the binge eating part might be um, supported, you know, again, not intentionally. Um, but more often than not, the message is get lean, um, which usually, again, means muscle. But for a lot of people, they hear lean and they hear smaller. And of course, in some some sports, perhaps gymnastics, dis- distance running, things like that, the message very well may be get smaller. Uh, and ultimately an eating disorder is going to disrupt performance. They will, their performance will decline and and it will tank. I mean, they just, they won't be able to perform the way they need to, but initially their, their performance might very well improve, um, because they've lost a little bit of weight and they really can move their body a little bit more easily. But unfortunately that reinforces the idea that whatever it was they were doing is working. So they want to do more of it because athletes are perfectionist. And of course, the more competitive they are, the, the, you know, the sharper the edge they want to have. So if this worked, I want to do more of that. I want to do that better. Um, and say so they may dive into whatever eating disorder they have going on. They may dive into that more fully. Uh, and then they will start to notice they don't have the energy that they, they used to, um, their times, if it's a timed thing, their times are, are worse, probably going down instead of getting faster. Um, even in practice, they're noticing, noticing differences. And so it, ultimately eating disorders are really dangerous. Um, they, and, and if you're engaging in really heavy duty, duty physical activity and you're not fueling your body correctly, there's the performance piece of it, but then there's the, can your body literally function piece of it? Does it have the minerals and nutrients and electrolytes it needs to keep going uh, and things like that? So it can be very, very dangerous um, in sport. Um, that's, that is the extreme. Um, usually what happens is a, an athlete's performance will decline and, and, or they'll get injured and they can't perform. And so they're effectively benched. Um, and hopefully they'll get treatment, uh, just kind of, again, depends on the program or who they are. So, um, that's, that's a, a thumbnail sketch of kind of what eating disorders can impact sport, um, and with anxiety, anxiety is tricky in sport because there's some, well, I already said before that when I use anxiety, I, I mean that in terms of clinical diagnosable anxiety, but I know a lot of people say, oh, I'm so anxious, I have anxiety. Um, they're probably talking about being worried being and the jitters, that kind of thing. There's a certain amount of that that's that's actually helpful for sport. Um, that means you're your body's kind of a little bit ready to go and you're, you're anxious to get started and do what you do and get into the flow. And a lot of athletes will say, not all of them for sure, but a lot will say, well, I was anxious until I got in there. Once I got in there, I was good. Um, but the clinical kind of anxiety, um, is not going to go away like that. Um, it's going to continue no matter where they are on the, in their competition, on the field, in the pool, whatever. Um, 
And it may very well, if it's depending on what kind of anxiety it is and how intense it is, it may very well keep them from showing up, literally showing up to practice or competition. I mean, again, that would be the extreme. Um, probably most athletes will show up, but they will be in a great deal of distress, but also probably really good at hiding it. Um, but their performance will probably suffer because they're so preoccupied with whatever their their anxiety is turning around in their head. They're not focused on their performance. Uh, and so that eventually they'll make mistakes. Uh, their times will suffer, that kind of thing. That was a really long answer to what you asked. And is there anything at a collegiate level to kind of help, obviously, the collegiate athlete it would want, in either of those two aspects? Ideally screening, I mean, initially. Um, and... You know, the NCAA in the the States has some things to say about what, you know, the importance of mental health and and screening and things like that. I honestly don't know enough about that to know how universal screening really is, whether here or even, you know, abroad uh, from even. Um, But screening is really important. Um, There are some tools that are really pretty simple um, that get you, you you know, whether it's the team physician or the athletic trainer who's asking the questions or another physician, you know, outside of the institution that asks questions about depression, anxiety, eating disorders, uh, anything like that, um, that could negatively affect the athlete. I mean, you know, again, most of us are thinking in terms of negatively affect in terms of performance, uh, which of course is important. I, I don't mean to dismiss that full out, but my first thought would be, well, negatively affect them as a human being and as their ability to just function and live a happy, content life. Um, and part of that probably is I want to still participate in my sport. I want to still compete. Um, so the the first part really is screening. Uh, and then if anything even remotely shows up a little bit or if nothing showed up in the screening but the coach or a trainer wonders about, well, this doesn't seem quite right, um, that they pull the athlete aside privately and, and talk with them about it, make a referral to the counseling center on campus. If there isn't something like that on campus, to an outside mental health professional that hopefully they have some kind of relationship set up with. Um, some of that does require that the coaches and trainers have training themselves in terms of recognizing signs and symptoms of various mental health issues. And is that something that's improved over the years then? Obviously, the recognition, uh, recognizing of the mental health. I think so. Um, I, you know, again, I, I don't know that for sure, but my 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 hunch and my gut is telling me that it has. Um, I think because I do know that there are more usually larger universities with really competitive um, athletic programs are starting to hire. Um, psychologists in their uh, mental health centers or, you know, counseling centers on campus who have a sport background. So they're starting to recognize athletes are a unique population. And so this isn't a sport psychologist for performance. This is a sport psychologist for mental health issues, the ones that I'm talking about right now. Um, So I'm hearing, I see, it's not a ton of jobs, but I'm seeing that more than I ever have. Like, hey, we're looking for somebody for our mental health center on campus, which is open to everybody, but we want somebody who understands athletes because there's a greater recognition that, that athletes uh, are suffering at least as much as the general population, in some cases more so, because of the pressure that they feel to perform. And do you think 
that in the past, well, probably still so, so, to some degree in the present, that athletes kind of feel that if they show signs of, obviously, that they're weak in mental health, that they'll be mm. looked down upon by their peers and obviously that outside world will you should be tougher tougher than this because you play, say, for example, American football, for example, where it's that, yeah. that's, uh, yeah. they play through injuries and whatnot. Yes, they do. They play through concussion. They try really, really hard to make it look like I'm fine. Even though I can't really stand up. Yeah, so, again, it, there is an it depends clause, which I'll mention in a second, but I, I, I think that's still generally true that, you know, an athlete, I think when people think highly competitive athletes or just competitive athletes at all, whether it's elite or, you know, weekend warrior kind of thing, you think tough, whether it's mental toughness, physical toughness, show no weakness, especially if it's a competition where you're directly competing against another team or another individual, because if they show no weakness, they'll exploit that. Um, so I do think that that part of the culture still strongly exists, but I, I am also aware of, and this is where the, again, the culture, whether it's athletic culture in general or the culture in the organization or on the campus itself, um, is really important because I am aware of some coaches who view uh, mental health issues as synonymous with something like a broken leg. It's an injury. You need to go get treatment for it. As soon as you're well, you're back. Like we want you back, but we want you well. And I would never have you compete on a broken leg. So I'm not going to have you compete with an active eating disorder or with the kind of anxiety that makes it so you're, you're terrified to step out onto the pitch or again, dive into the pool or whatever. So Please go get help. Here's some referrals. And when you're ready, when the psychologist or whomever says you're ready, you're welcome back and we'll get you retrained and or keep you training as we go if that's appropriate, that kind of thing. So it, it does in large part depend on who's sort of in charge of the athletes and how do they view mental health and are they accepting that it doesn't mean anything other than it's something like an injury that just needs to be healed. Well, that's not great though, is it? Because it's... In some cases, it's worse than an injury. It can be. Um, that That's where early the screening and early identification is so important because if it's caught early, it's not going to be too different than something like a broken. I mean, depending on how, what kind of broken leg we're talking about, I mean, it can take weeks or months. Uh, and so if a mental health issue is identified early, um Recovery can take months, um, like two, three months maybe, which is going to seem – that's a season in collegiate athletics for sure. Um, but that's not years and years and years. So – or, you know, so debilitated that they even have to drop out of school altogether if we're talking about collegiate athletics. So you're right. It's not ideal, um, especially if whatever we're talking about has been around for a long time, <clears throat> years. That is going to take a longer recovery. Usually, though – I think I can say usually um, there's so much we know about the benefit of sport and physical activity that those who are, who do know athletes and understand that and physical activity in general are going to work with the athlete to get them back. So they may not be fully cured of whatever is going on, but as long as they're certainly medically okay and psychologically the, the mental health professional thinks, you know, why don't you try going back to practice if they've been out of that, or why don't you try your next, if you, you know, the coach wants to put you in your next competition, whatever it is, see how that goes, 
and then we'll we'll you know make an assessment of whether you know you're ready to to recompete again. So that you know I don't want to do too much of a sell job for sports psychologists, but that's in part why people who are very familiar with athletes on on a college campus in a mental health center is so important um, because athletes if they're working with somebody who doesn't understand how important competition is and that they want to get back ASAP and that that mental health professional professional isn't working with them to help make that happen. It's just, they're probably not going to get the treatment they need. Okay. So I think we'll wrap up the podcast there. So if you could wrap it, um, kind of summarize the podcast into one sentence, what would that be? (laughs) I needed to prepare for that. Um, well, I would say, I would say for, it's going to be a run on sentence probably, but I would say for, for the, the individual themselves, don't ignore the part of you that's telling you that something's wrong. Um, go ahead and talk to whether it's a, a medical provider, a physician or a mental health provider to say, you know, I'm not so sure about this thing. Get an assessment basically. And for those who love and care about, you know, their athletes or they're just, they're, their average loved one um same thing don't ignore something that seems not quite right um just meet with somebody who can do a proper assessment and determine if in fact there's something that needs treatment or just a little bit of support so thanks again for coming on the show christine and sharing your insight into obviously what is a very important topic my pleasure i appreciate you asking me to to be on your show or your podcast I guess it's a show, yeah. Bit above. Uh, okay. So once again, thanks again. My pleasure. And for everybody else, this podcast will be aired every Thursday. So until next week, I will see you.